Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In a summer of iconic images, it was, in my view at least, the most iconic image. It captured everything that was absurd and troubling and chilling and humorous about uh, Donald Trump's America. On June 1, the president walked with his daughter and several other people uh, from the White House to St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, his daughter was carrying a big white uh, $1,500 Max Mara handbag. Uh, they got to St. John's Episcopal Church. They cleared out, quote-unquote, a riot, although it was demonstrators, people outraged by the killing of George Floyd. And then uh, our president, or perhaps your president, I'm not actually American, uh, 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 Donald Trump made a speech outside the church uh, arguing that we have the greatest country, we Americans have the greatest country in the world and, and before he made the speech um, his daughter Ivanka Trump opened that $1,500 Max Mara that big white handbag, pulled out a Bible and uh, Donald Trump used that Bible uh, waving it in front of St. John's Episcopal Church as he was um, claiming that America is the greatest country in the world. Uh, the imagery, of course, is absurd and surreal, and it speaks clearly, I think, to the power that Trump himself has over white Christians in America. Not all white Christians, not all white Protestant Christians, but many. Uh, John uh, Compton, uh, an academic from Chapman University, has a new book out, The End of Empathy, Why White Protestants Stopped Loving Their Neighbors. And when it comes to the end of empathy and white Protestants, I don't think there's a more appropriate moment when uh, Trump stood outside St. John's Episcopal Church on June 1 of 2020 to speak about the greatness of America. Uh, John, uh, am I going overboard on that imagery, or did it capture uh, your attention to uh, Trump's uh, visit to St. John's Episcopal uh, on June 1? Right. I think you're right. That was a very powerful moment, and it tells us a lot about how Trump understands his electoral coalition. I mean, he knows that in 2016, he won 80, 81% of the white evangelical vote, and he knows that if he wants to have any chance of being reelected, he's going to have to you know, come close to equaling that again. So he's clearly going out of his way to, to reassure this segment of his base. Um, you know, I would just disagree with your characterization of the situation slightly on, on one, one aspect of it. Um, you know, there's sort of a sense, I think, uh, among a lot of commentators in this country that uh, evangelicals sort of follow the lead of these powerful elites and the elites like Trump. And uh, so when, when Trump does something flashy like this uh, to really signal his, uh, his support for the evangelical, uh, evangelical voters that, you know, somehow it's an elite driven phenomenon. 
Um, and in fact, I think it's, it's more just, uh, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, um, evangelical churchgoers increasingly have drifted to the right along with their, their more secular neighbors. It's not necessarily clear to me that religion is the force pushing everything to the right. It's more that, you know, working class whites, non-college educated whites are just drifting further and further right, and their leaders have to kind of keep up with that. And I think Trump has, has capitalized on that phenomenon, but not so much in a top-down fashion. It's more just uh, evangelicals have drifted that way, and, and uh, he's, he's reaped the benefits of it. I want to come back to this, John, because I think it's an interesting subject that Trump outside the, the White House, uh, outside the church. But um, let's go back to basics here. Uh, you're one of America's leading scholars on uh, white Protestants uh, and what you call evangelicals. It, 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 are all white Protestants evangelicals? Are these terms interchangeable or are they different? Because often people just use them without, I think, a lot of thought. Right. That's a great point. It, it, it is important to go back to basics here. And, you know, traditionally in this country, we have, you know, there are many different traditions of Protestantism, but probably the major dividing line is evangelical versus mainline Protestant. Uh, the term mainline Protestant is usually used to refer to the older, more established, uh, more liberal uh, denominations, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Episcopalians, um, and, you know, until the 60s or so, that was the bulk uh, or by far the largest segment of American Protestants. Um, evangelicals were always sort of the outsiders, um, with the possible exception of the South. Right? The South was a little different. Yeah, let me jump in. What is an evangelical, John? Sure. So um, evangelicals traditionally, at least since the, I suppose, the, to back up a little further, um, the, the real split happens in the teen, 19-teens, 1920s, when you see the so-called fundamentalist movement where uh, uh, Christians who support a very literal reading of the Bible, um, who you know, are opposed to evolution, um, opposed to drinking, opposed to any relaxing of social mores, um, they begin to split off from the mainline Protestant churches. Was and, this, uh, it, thinking historically, and you're a deeply historical scholar on this stuff, is this in some ways a repeat of the Reformation itself when Lutherans or Calvinists um, rebelled against the authority of the, the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely. I think that's an aspect of it, um, particularly when we get into the mid-20th century, uh, when you start to see uh, you know, figures like Billy Graham, um, Billy Graham starts a magazine called Christianity Today, which becomes the, the most popular religious magazine in the U.S. Um, the people in Graham's circle who called themselves evangelicals uh, really did see themselves as following in the, you know, the footsteps of Luther. They thought that the, the mainline Protestant denominations had become too bureaucratic. Um, they'd become too top-down authoritarian um, and too involved in social reform as opposed to spiritual matters. So um, Graham and his circle really did see themselves as, as trying to split off and, and form a more, you know, independent grassroots kind of religious tradition. Um, so I think that is a, a fair parallel. Um, and is it um, a retreat, if that's the right word, into the self, away from institutions? By definition, is, is, is the evangelical calling um, an internal one, something that, for example, and I know you write about this in your book, uh, Max Weber observed in his Protestant ethic and the origins of capitalism. Uh, 
Right. Uh, bringing Weber into it complicates things a bit. Um, to, um, if, I, if I can go down that road, it takes us a little bit off uh, track from your question, but um, I argue that one reason the mainline Protestant nominations were so powerful was because church membership had a very important socioeconomic function which Baber recognized when he visited this country in 1904 and toured around to different uh, cities and observed different congregations. Um, and up through the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, if you wanted to uh, get somewhere in society, it was very helpful to be a member of a respected church. Um, and there were sort of two or three main denominations that really signaled that you were you know, uh, an up and coming person and, 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 and should be respected, you know, the Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Episcopalians. And, uh, so that really gave the mainline churches quite a bit of authority, um, to shape society. Um, the evangelical churches, um, you know, were, were very different in some respects. They, they were not plugged into the, to the secular social networks in the same way that the mainline Protestants were. And, so they tended to be more filled with uh, less educated uh, people. Um, more, they were they were bigger and more popular in rural areas. Uh, so you know that's that's another aspect of this evangelical mainline. More, more or less empathetic. Uh, you, 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 your book is entitled "The End of Empathy." Is empathy somehow foreign to the, borrowing from from Weber's term, the Protestant ethic, or? or can even the most evangelical Protestants, can empathy be the core of their theology? Oh, of course. I mean, you can have, you know, both of these traditions can, can point to, to many, you know, thinkers and many, you know, empathetic figures and reforms that they have uh, pushed for over the years. I think the difference, the key difference is that the mainline churches were much more effective at mobilizing their members to actually change society. They had this social clout, they had the institutions, they had vast, uh, vast network of church councils that stretched across the country. So when something happened, like uh, the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, the mainline churches were able, you know, they were, they were obviously late to the party, but when they got on board, they were able to mobilize their members to lobby the representatives and they were really instrumental in pushing through the civil rights act and the voting rights act mm. in the evangelical circles you know of course you had people like billy graham calling racial segregation a sin and you know he took some steps like integrating his revivals in some southern and border uh, states um but at the end of the day the evangelicals always say well you have to change hearts you have to change individuals before you can change society so they were very opposed to kind of top-down mobilization and, and churches staking out clear positions on political issues. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, they're, you know, when you make it all about individual salvation, uh, you know, people can interpret the Bible, they can interpret politics uh, any way they want. So it's very hard to uh, affect change in that way. And as an example, I'll just point to, you know, since the early 2000s, there have been, there's been some movement in evangelical circles to, to adopt more progressive stances on issues like climate change, um, immigration reform. And, you know, every few months you'll see a, an article and, uh, you know, in a major periodical arguing that, well, there's an evangelical left that's now on the march and maybe it's, you know, maybe they can sort of wrest power away from the religious right. 
but these movements never really get anywhere. Um, evangelical groups poured a ton of money into pushing for immigration reform in 2013-2014, uh, pushing for a path to citizenship, etc. And they got nowhere. Polls showed that the, the people in the pews, um, if anything, moved to the right on, on immigration during that time frame. John, let me jump in here. Um, you seem, you're, you're a very distinguished scholar and you seem very reasonable. I think in some ways your book is an attempt to sort of bend over backwards to be fair to the evangelicals. But there is a there is the, gori- the gorilla, the big gorilla in the room when it comes to white Protestants, and that's racism. Um, and the subtitle of your book is Why White Protestants Stop Loving Their Neighbor, and all too often their neighbors are either black or brown. In your view, is are many of these white Protestants, when it all gets boiled down, you've done a lot of research, both historical and contemporary, are these people just simply racist? So they dislike black and brown people. And is that somehow being incorporated into their theology? In their view, is God white and most Christians, are they just basically white? Right. I mean, racism is a complicated subject. So the way, you know, the way political scientists usually talk about it is in terms of what they call racial resentment, right? Because if you ask someone, you know, are you racist? Of course, they'll say no. So political scientists try to measure things like, well, do you believe that if minorities just worked harder, they would, they would get ahead in society? Um, do you believe that? And that's minorities- a racist. And if they say, uh, if, if, if they come out with the, the, the wrong answer, does that essentially make them racist in your view? I think that is, yes. I, I think that is obviously a form of racism. I think it's worth distinguishing it from, say, the racism in the 50s and 60s, which was much more you know, visceral. You know, I don't want you know, race X as my neighbor. So I think there has been sort of a change. But to get back to your original question, um, I, I think the answer is that you know, less educated whites... Um, do exhibit high levels of racial resentment. And there's evidence that that's increased in recent years. It's not clear to me, however, that religion's driving it. Um, And I know that may seem like a strange thing for me to say, having just written a huge book about religion and race. Yeah. But part of my argument is that, well, you know, a lot of people want to make religion the ultimate cause of everything. And in fact, uh, in our current religious environment where the so-called leaders of these churches don't really have a lot of authority. Oftentimes they're just following the lead of their, uh, of their congregants, right? So if the people in the pews have become more racist or exhibit higher levels of racial resentment, their leaders will generally go along with it. I mean, they have to, they have to have a job at the end of the day. But you're arguing in the book, um, and it's a really interesting book, um, that, um, the reason why you have this, again, I, I use this word carefully, schism, perhaps, or, uh, within the, the Protestant community in the United States is because of you have a, a, a collapse of religious authority in the 50s and 60s, which has resulted in this kind of anarchy or, or chaos within populist evangelicalism, right? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... That is the core argument of the book, that prior to the, 50, prior to the 60s, you had this set of institutions in place, religious institutions, that allowed sort of center-left religious leaders to have real authority and to exert influence on, on social and political questions. And when that collapse, collapses, you do have a kind of anarchy. And there's this interesting period in the 70s where it's not exactly clear what's going to happen. You had 
evangelicals who were pretty liberal on a lot of issues. You had evangelical environmentalists. You had evangelicals advocating for you know strong action on civil rights. Um, then you get the Reagan Revolution, and um, non-college educated whites flock to the Republican Party. From the best we can tell, it's largely some combination of racial anxiety and economic anxiety that drives them. And at that point, evangelical leaders face a choice. You know, are they going to get on the bandwagon? And most of them do. The Jerry Falwells, um, you know, he's one of the earliest to sort of sign on to the, uh, the Reagan revolution. Um, then you have others who try to resist uh, figures like John B. Anderson, who ran for, for president in 1980 as a third party candidate, uh, very prominent evangelical. And these people just get marginalized. I mean, who even remembers John B. Anderson today? But at that time, he was probably the most uh, famous evangelical in Congress, arguably. Um, so I, I think that's, um, you know, that's what we see happening around. And it, it really does unfold in, in the 70s and 80s. Let's go back finally, um, John, to St. John's Episcopal Church on June 1st. So the the president of the United States, who claims to be a Christian, but whose behavior in his 70 years on earth doesn't seem to reflect many Christian values, uh, waves, this, uh, waves this Bible, which his Jewish daughter pulls out of her $1,500 white Max Mara handbag. He waves it and what are most evangelicals thinking when they see this? Do they think of Trump as sort of a slightly embarrassing but nonetheless reliable member of their team? Aren't many of them simply shamed by this self-evident hypocrisy, this absurd manifestation of um, religious hypocrisy? Well, again, I think there's a sharp, even today, I think there's a fairly sharp distinction between evangelical elites and average evangelicals. Um, you know, clearly you have some elites who are on fully on, on board with Trump and, and support him at every opportunity, but you have others, you know, the um, Michael Gershon, Gerson's, uh, the Peter Wainers. And Peter Wainer was actually on this show and, and nobody does a better job, I think, doing a, a moral critique of Trump than, than Wainer and people like Stuart Stevens. So many, much of the critique, the best critique, I think, of Trump comes from within the, the evangelical community. Right. And I think even when you look at, say, evangelical seminaries, uh, evangelical, you know, periodicals like Christian Christianity Today, if you, if you recall, came out in favor of Trump's impeachment, which was a huge shock to a lot of people. Um, so I think there are plenty of evangelical elites who see this behavior and are just horrified by it. Um, but we know from public opinion polls that average evangelicals feel very differently. They see it as a sign that Trump is on our team. You know, we're, we're locked in a culture war and we want a fighter. And Trump is clearly some, someone who's willing to fight for our side. Um, and so I think that's been the dynamic. I mean, we like to talk, talk about Trump as this revolutionary figure who's totally upended our politics. But at least if we're talking about the evangelical world, I think that's basically been the dynamic since the 80s, that um, the, the people in the pews are moving further and further to, to the right. Uh, the elites sometimes try to resist, but when they do, they usually just get shunted aside. What do you think will happen in, in a post-Trump world within the evangelical community? Will there be a bloodletting? Will there be a, a, almost a, perhaps even an apology about the sins of the, the Trump age? Uh, 
Or do you think there'll be a further shift to the right and perhaps we'll find uh, a post-Trump politician who's even more appalling or hypocritical or racist than Trump himself? Right. Yeah, I go back and forth on that. But I, I think that whatever happens, I think religion will continue to be, you might say, downstream of politics in the sense that, you know, let's say Trump loses uh, in November. Um, let's say he loses decisively. Uh, then I think you'll see, obviously, a, a regrouping on among the Republican Party, probably a, an attempt to move in a new direction. And I think if evangelicals realize that they can't hold on to power uh, in the way they've been holding on to power, they'll be forced to recalculate things just like, you know, Republican Party leaders will. Um, on the other hand, if they think that there is someone out there like a, you know, Tom Cotton or someone like that who will pick up the Trump mantle and, and try to... Uh, keep the party in the same vein, then, then I would expect evangelicals to, uh, you know, to be much slower to let go of the uh, positions they've adopted during the Trump era. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, uh, John, that you, you, in the end of empathy, you write about why white Protestants stop loving their neighbors. And yet white Protestants are also the most nationalistic of Americans. So when Trump waved that Bible, he said, we have the greatest country in the world and many evangelicals' hearts were warmed. How, how can you simultaneously stop loving your neighbor and yet be increasingly nationalistic? I guess I don't see those two things as being in conflict. Uh, I mean, from the evangelical point of view, right? I mean, if, if your definition of... of what it means to be an American is colored by, you know, race, ethnicity, religion. Um, and you use that word colored. Right. Carefully, uh, right. <laughs> sure. I mean, you're, you're defined, you know, you're, you're basically defining a lot of people out of full membership in society. Um, and, and I think that's always, you know, there's some good work being done right now on, on Christian nationalism. Um, some sociologists are doing great work on that. And I think they're, that is a strand of evangelicalism that's very powerful and, you know, stretches back to the, 20s and 30s at least. Um, so I, I'm not sure there's much that's, that's new about that, but I agree that that's an, uh, an important strand of, of the evangelical tradition. Finally, John, uh, you are uh, living in LA. You teach at Chapman University. You're stuck there. I'm in Berkeley, California. We're both on the West Coast. Uh, for people interested in this weird history of American Protestantism. I strongly encourage your book, The End of Empathy. What else should people be reading uh, in our weird times where we're all stuck at home and perhaps on American religion or Protestantism or whatever else catches your fancy? Sure. I'll, uh, just a couple of suggestions. Um, Alan Jacobs is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he has a fairly recent book that I just finished called The Year of Our Lord, 1943. Uh, Christian humanism in an age of crisis. So for you know people who are thinking about a post-Trump era and, and the role that religion or even just some sort of sense of common humanity might play in a post-Trump era, I think Jacob's book is excellent because it looks at the World War II era and people who were thinking about how to rebuild um, after World War II. Um, another, another great book, um, and I apologize because I'll probably uh, butcher the author's name, um, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, Kristen Co Cobes Dumez, um, historian at Calvin College, wrote this and really does a great job of, of tracking the rise of ideas of kind of aggressive masculinity within the evangelical tradition, 
mostly in the you know post 1960s era. I think both of those are, are excellent books for thinking about how we move forward um, potentially in a in a post-Trump age. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.